Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. A while ago at the beginning of the lockdown, uh, Jeff and I were discussing about the different things we can photograph during the lockdown since we can't go very far. And I raised the question about taking photos of the sky. And, and I was almost tempted to think, you know, get a telescope and get pictures of the moon and the planets and all that. But I wanted to have an idea where to start with all this. And we figured we should go to someone who knows a lot about this and who's written a book. So this week we've got Glenn Randall and his book is called Dusk to Dawn, A Guide to Landscape Photography at Night. Glenn, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. One of the reasons that I'm tempted by this is I live um, about three miles from Stratford-upon-Avon, surrounded on two sides by fields, and the other side is a tiny village. And are you ready for this? There are no streetlights in the village. There are no streetlights in the next village over. There are no streetlights within miles. And sometimes in summer, my partner and I sit out in the garden at night and... When we do have clear skies, which isn't always the case, the stars are just so big. The moon is mm-hmm. so bright. Mm-hmm. And was it a few weeks ago we had the moon and we had Venus um, to the west? Venus was incredibly bright. Um, it's yeah. fascinating mm-hmm. to look at that. And I wanted to have an idea of what it would take to start photographing. Now, hang on a second. You say st- Stars. What are you talking about? I live in Seattle where there's a lot of clouds. There's a lot of city light. Do you mean there's something up there in the sky? There's something up there behind the clouds and and the city light. Out of here. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Well, clearly you need to get out of Seattle a little ways and uh, go someplace where it's dark and clear if you can possibly find that. Definitely, definitely. So, Glenn, where do you start with this? Well, you know, it sounds like you are already in a, a good dark sky location. That would be the, the first criteria, try to get away from city lights. Um, if you are interested in photographing the Milky Way, which is probably the single most you know, spectacular uh, subject for night photographers that's ex- available you know, without traveling, for example, to the Arctic to shoot the aurora or something like that. So you want to get away from city lights. You want to go – if you want to shoot the Milky Way, you want to go on a night when the moon is not above the horizon at the time you're shooting. You don't need to go just on the night of full moon. You know, so if it turns out the Milky Way is brilliant at 2 a.m. and the moon sets at midnight, you're good. You know, So there's a much broader window per month when you can go out and shoot the Milky Way than I would have thought when I first started doing this you know, six, seven years ago. Um, and then you want to shoot between astronomical dusk and astronomical dawn. So basically there are several different dusks. Uh, there's uh, civil dusk, um, uh, nautical dusk, and astronomical dusk. Astronomical dusk is when the sun is 18 degrees below the horizon. Uh, and then astronomical dawn, of course, is when, as the sun starts to rise again when it's once again 18 degrees below the horizon. So there's all kinds of apps that will give you the times of astronomical dusk and astronomical dawn, um, photo pills, etc. I have a watch face on my Apple Watch, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know what it's called, but it's got the, the sun and, the, and, and as it, it's a circle and it's got the sun going around. And as I move it to see the time of day, it's day, civil twilight, ast- nautical twilight, and then astronomical twilight, and then 
Well, then it stops because it's already midnight here. Then Astronomical Dawn, etc. So you don't even need an app. You can find this on your Apple Watch. On your Apple Watch will do it. Yep. Um, the Photographer's Ephemeris, uh, Sun Surveyor, Photopills, and I'm sure there's plenty of other websites that also have this information. So that's the main thing is you start, you know, get someplace that's very dark at a time when there's no moon and it's the darkest time of night. Uh, One thing I noticed in your book is your, your first chapter, Preparing for Night Photography, it starts with a section about hiking at night. And mm-hmm. obviously you're hiking for two reasons, I assume. One, to find interesting locations. And I, the photos in your book are just extraordinary. You're, you're out well, in some beautiful locations um, and you've got auroras and you've got the sky, the circles, the, the stars and circles, etc. But a lot of what you're saying is that you do have to hike and you do have to get someplace Either you're hiking at night in the dark, which is dangerous, or I guess you go during the day and you wait. Um, I guess I'm really spoiled that I could do this in my backyard. Well, I I think you probably are spoiled. That's probably not the majority of the readers of my book. Um, But you certainly don't need to hike to to get to – you you can drive to dark sky locations. You know, up in Rocky Mountain National Park, there's there's a number of good drive-up locations, for example. So – and if you do need to hike at night, you know, buy a big headlamp. This also demonstrates something that I learned when I first started trying to do some night sky photography. I've done some. I haven't done a whole lot. And part of that is, you know, you go outside, you look up at the stars, you're like, wow, this is beautiful. And so the first inclination is to get your camera, put it on a tripod, point it at the stars, and just take a picture. And learned very early on, just taking a picture of the stars is not that interesting unless you happen to have, you know, fantastic Milky Way. And it reiterated that you want to bring in all the stuff you know about composition in your photography because just having stars, that's not going to do it. You need to have something more interesting. You need to have, you know, foreground elements or trees or something, which also helps gives it that scale. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so... You know, when cameras first came out that were capable of capturing stars as points instead of as streaks, you know, which is what, six, eight, ten years ago now, um, just a shot of the Milky Way all by itself was like amazing. It's like, wow, we haven't seen this before, not from a not from a DSLR or a mirrorless. Um, but now that it's become much more commonplace, you're, you're quite right, Jeff, that you, you want to try to integrate a great sky into a great landscape just like you would in daylight. Um, so, you know, if... And you're also right that a shot just of the stars by themselves, you t- you can easily end up with something that looks like a daylight photograph with a bunch of little white dots in the sky. Um, yeah. So if if you want to photograph the Milky Way, you, you what you really want to do is photograph the um, the galactic center, and the galactic center has a season. You know, here in the mid latitudes in North America, you know the uh, the season runs from about March 1st to about October 1st when the galactic center, the most interesting and photogenic part of the Milky Way, will be above the horizon when it's fully dark. Coincidentally, that includes the summer, which is the period when you're willing to be outside at night. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, which is a a good thing, a fortuitous coincidence. So um, that's, you know, different latitudes, that's going to be, uh, it's going to be a different equation. You know, go to Fairbanks, for example, you know, you'll never be able to see the galactic center. It never rises. You're too far north. You know, you go to Peru and the galactic center can be as much as 73 degrees above the horizon. You know, so the season is much longer as you go further south than it is, say, in the mid latitudes in the United States.
So does that mean that where I am in the UK, I wouldn't see it? You know, I don't know what your latitude is. Well, it's about Nova Scotia. And I, I'm thinking that okay. that must be similar to um, maybe not that far from Alaska. You know, I'd have to look it up. You know, an app like Sun Surveyor could give you could give you data on that. Okay. Um, I, I my my guess, without looking it up, would be that you have a, a limited, a more limited season, but it's not as bad as Fairbanks. And that's it's also not to say you can't shoot the Milky Way in Fairbanks. You know, you can see the Milky Way when it's fully dark. You just won't be able to see the galactic center, which is the most interesting part of the Milky Way, where all those gas clouds and dust clouds yeah. are. That interesting structure. You know, the Great Rift and you know, things like that. Okay, here I was. I was all excited. Then now I find that I may not even see anything at all. No, I know there's always things to see. Yeah. I think you'll probably have pretty good luck. I mean, just, I mean, you're, you're definitely north, but you're not super, super far north. So, and hey, just what a good reason to go out and check anyway. Yes, yes. indeed. <laughs> um, so before we started recording, Jeff gave his usual disclaimer that we're not a gear show. We don't like to talk a lot about gear, and we do occasionally, but um, it's really important to talk about gear in this type of photography. But what I really like in your book is like the gear is just simple. It's a camera. It's a lens. It's a tripod. It's a headlamp. Um, maybe some warm clothes. That's about it. De definitely some warm clothes. It's a lot colder than people uh... – Standing around by a tripod in the dark is much colder than most people expect the first time they go out to do it. You know, it's the same temperature at night feels a whole lot colder than the same temperature during the day. Uh, so, yes, gearing, gearing up is certainly important. Um, and, and as you say, you know, all you really need to start at night is a relatively recent DSLR because you're probably going to want to go as high as ISO 6400. Um, and then a wide, fast lens, like 16 to 35 f2.8 or 14 to 24 f2.8, something in that range. Um, you know, the wider the lens, the longer you can leave the shutter open before the stars make visible streaks. So having that combination of a very wide angle of view and a relatively fast aperture is, is important. And then, of course, a solid tripod, cable release, intervalometer if you want to dive in a little bit more deeply. Um, that. That's that's will certainly get you started. It's it's pretty simple. So I know someone who said that he has a friend um, who does. Um, I guess it's astronomical photography. He's got a van all kitted out with his telescope and everything, and he's got like tens of thousands of dollars of gear and things to connect the camera to the telescope and a telescope that automatically moves. And that's an awful lot more complicated. And looking at your book, um, I expected to see some of that, but I'm very glad that I don't, that it's really, it's really a simple, uh, an uncomplicated type of photography, as long as you've got the location, the weather, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. You know, certainly, as you say, once you start to get into deep space photography, meaning you want to shoot nebulas and, you know, other sorts of astronomical objects, then, yeah, it gets very gear intensive very fast. But I've never really dove into that. I wanted to make my book be about you know, sort of wide field astrophotography, if you will, you know, photographs of the night sky that include uh, a, a great landscape. So let's step real quick through what's required for this, because I, I want to just get some basics down. Basically, what we're doing is long exposure photography, because the idea is we want to let as much light into the camera sensor as possible, because, of course, it's very dark. When I 
again, going back to my own personal experience, when I first started doing this, I was like, hey, I've got a relatively recent camera, I've got a fast lens, and so I would just take pictures as normal and, of course, end up with basically all black. And so you want to have a really high ISO, you want to have a long exposure, but you also run into the problem of if you leave the shutter open too long, then you end up basically getting either blurring because, strangely enough, this whole planet is moving and the sky is moving. <laughs> I almost I almost started by saying the sky is moving. I was like, no, no, that's not how physics works. But, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, well, I'm just going to do a two-minute exposure and see what happens. And then you end up with something that's, you know, probably too bright or everything's smudged because of the stars moving. So what's that that magical spot where you can get nice, clear shots and still have enough uh, exposure so that you're you're seeing what you're seeing. Like, there's a there's a term. There's like a like a magical triangle or something, right? Right. The the exposure triangle. Well, not that one, but there's like some calculation. Maybe that that's what I'm trying to say. There, there's some calculation. Right. So let me back up half a step. So, you know, a classic exposure for the Milky Way in a dark sky location where you don't have light pollution, no nearby city would be 30 seconds, F28, ISO 6400. Um, however, you can only get away with using an exposure as long as 30 seconds if you're using a wide angle lens. Uh, so the way you can get. Why is that? It's because what you're concerned about is the angle of view of the lens and how far stars move across the field of view during the exposure. So to give you a simplified example, let's say you had a super telephoto with a one degree angle of view and your exposure was long enough the star moved one degree during your exposure. It would make a streak across the entire field of view. Now you have a wide angle lens with a hundred degree angle of view, the star moves one degree. Now it's only one one hundredth of the field of view of the lens. So the wider the lens, the wider the angle of view, the longer you can leave the shutter open. And a way to get a rough estimate of how long that shutter speed can be is the 500 rule, which basically says you take 500, divide it by the focal length of the lens as a full frame equivalent, um, and that gives you the length of time in seconds. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're using uh, the 500 rule, you're using a 20 millimeter lens, 500 divided by 20 is 25. 25 seconds is approximately how long you can leave the shutter open to get reasonably round stars. Now, quick caveat, if you zoom into 100%, you know, you will see short streaks, uh, but at a normal printing resolution, maybe 240 pixels per inch, the stars are reasonably round. You know, everything in night photography is a compromise. You're kind of right at the bleeding edge of both sensor technology and lens technology. So the 500 rule is a reasonable compromise to get you know, relatively low noise, reasonably round stars, correct exposure that you can work with where not everything is not black. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought, I mean, it makes sense, but I just wouldn't have thought of that, that mm -hmm. 
the, the angle of view makes that much of a difference. Because uh, looking through your book, you're talking about wide angle. I was thinking you want a wide angle lens to get the whole sky. Um, mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. a lot more than that. On the other hand, if you were doing so, and this is not the subject of your book, but if you were doing, say, photos of the moon, in that case, you wouldn't want a wide angle lens because you need to zoom. But also the moon's so bright that it's going to overexpose in most cases, correct? Yes, yes. Certainly 30 seconds F2.8 ISO 6400 is going to blow the moon out by six or eight stops. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the moon is very, very bright. You know, strictly the full moon is very, very bright compared to the stars. Um, What about when you're shooting an aurora? You have lots of pictures of auroras. So my starting point exposure for the aurora is like 10 seconds uh, F2.8 ISO 3200. But the aurora varies a great deal in brightness, you know, minute by minute, in fact. So you pretty much have to guess and check and test and shoot again. Um, You know, it'll vary two or three stops in either direction from that sort of starting point exposure. So that's the kind of thing that you want to just comfortably underexpose. And so you can you shoot in raw, you underexpose and you can up the exposure in post. Well, within limits, yes. Ideally, you would get it right. You know, so the way I when I'm shooting the Aurora, you know, I set up image review. So I always get a quick look at the image along with its histogram immediately after I shoot it. So if I've missed, I can adjust and try to get another shot before the Aurora fades or changes shape or something like that. Which happens pretty quickly, right? Yes. Yeah. Unlike, say, the Milky Way, you know, Milky Way doesn't move very fast. You know, you you can definitely refine your composition, try again. The Aurora, you know, it's moving so fast that you need to compose each shot individually. So you want to let your eyes get as dark adapted as possible, which takes about 30 minutes. You know, that's, you, know, you don't want any bright white lights. You know, you know, that's why you don't use a bright white headlamp when you're shooting the Aurora. You know, once you start shooting, you let your di- eyes adapt. You can actually see, to some extent, the Aurora through the viewfinder once you are adapted. Dark adapted, um, and then uh, try to compose each shot, nail down that tripod, and fire the shutter as fast as possible before it moves, changes, fades, goes away. I like how you said the Milky Way doesn't move fast. I just quickly Googled it moves at 1.3 million miles per hour. <laughs> yes, yes. Nerd. But everything is, Nerd. Everything is relative. I know. <laughs> it, it moves approximately, uh, let's see, it's about one degree every four minutes. Right. And so, uh, is, is, that, is that the movement of the Milky Way or is that the rotation of the Earth? That's the rotation of the Earth. So, yeah. Right. So, start, to be precise. the Milky Way itself the... is, is going through space at 1.3 million miles an hour. Right. But we are embedded in the Milky Way galaxy. So Fortunately. We're moving, we're, we're moving at the same speed as it is, essentially. Right. <laughs> um, one thing that I find really interesting about this is the scale and, and the feeling that you get when you're outdoors. And, and again, um, I lived in southern France for a year in a place that didn't have any streetlights. Uh, well, there were a couple of streetlights in the village, but I would go out of the village and down to the main road. And once I'd get out of the village, it was just, it was the first time in my life I had ever experienced that. Because I grew up in the States in New York City. You can't get away from streetlights. You've got to go really far. Right, and right. that experience was really moving. And here, I just go out in the garden at night and we just lie back in our chairs when it's warm enough in summer. Like when the, I can't remember the name of the meteor shower in August. Um, the Perseids. The Perseids, right. And we go out with a glass of wine and we watch that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the view is just extraordinary. And, and one of the things, just beyond taking photos of the stars in the Milky Way and the auroras at night, is just that expansiveness that you can experience when you're outdoors. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah, it's you know it's a very technical subject shooting the Milky Way or the Aurora or something, but I always try to remember to kind of turn off the camera, turn off the the headlamp, and just stand there for a little while and soak it all in because there's no better way to sort of appreciate the immensity of our universe than to stand there under a really dark sky and and let it soak in. I want to touch on one thing before we jump to the next subject, and that is uh, focus because. That's something that um, I think a lot of people have trouble with because they go out and it's dark and suddenly, you know, A, your camera wants to look for a focus point. And you know, when you're looking at the stars, that's really difficult. Or it's too dark for your camera to get any sort of focus. So then you're like moving things manually. Before you answer, I just want to share an experience. Um, I've recently been amusing myself taking pictures of clouds. And what I find is I have my camera set to manual focus. And, and what I find is that I always thought that I would just go all the way to infinity and it would focus. But it's not working like that. So you've got a section in the book about hyperfocal distance and circle of confusion. And that's going to be the name of my Credence Clearwater Revival um, cover band, Circle of Confusion, because <laughs> there I don't you go. understand it. If you can do it in three minutes, explain how this works. Okay, well, let, let's, let's get back to Jeff's question just to get the basics first. So at night, autofocus is useless. Turn it off so you don't accidentally trigger it. Two, yeah. you're correct. Most modern lenses will focus past infinity. They do this for two reasons. One is to allow for thermal expansion and contraction. So in a very cold or very warm climate, you can still focus at infinity. Two is that it makes the it puts less wear on the autofocus mechanism to not have a hard stop at the infinity mark. Uh, so Right. Unlike it, the lenses it, I had when I shot at film, when I would right. move the aperture ring, it would stop. Whereas the ones – Jeff and I both shoot Fujifilm cameras, and they just have rings that keep spinning. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. And then the third point is that simply setting the index mark on the lens next to the infinity mark on the focus scale, that is also not necessarily accurate enough. So the way to focus at night, easiest way is cheat, don't, focus in daylight – using autofocus on something that's, uh, you know, quite a distance away, several hundred yards, let's say, um, and then tape the lens with gaffer's tape uh, to preserve infinity focus. So you want to make sure when you're focusing during the day that, you're, that you focus and then test wide open, you know, test to make sure you've got it exactly right. Um, and then at night when you want to, you know, you should confirm that you didn't bump the lens or something when you put it back in your camera bag, you should always do a test where you include a little bit of the skyline in your shot because a slightly out of focus star just looks like a bigger star whereas a fuzzy skyline will definitely look fuzzy when you when you play it back and enlarge it to 10x if, could could there be problems if it's warm during the day and cool at night because you were talking about thermal yes there could be and i think that i did indeed observe that once um, so yes it's a good idea to keep checking your focus during the night and if you do need to focus at night the best solution is engage live view um, uh, enlarge, you know, point the lens roughly at a bright star, preferably a planet, and uh, en enlarge the image to about 10x, and then manually focus very carefully on that star. And then tape, test, uh, make sure you include some skyline in your test. And, and uh, it, it can be a time-consuming and fiddly process. Um, Yes, but you wouldn't want to spend the whole night taking pictures and find they're all out of focus. Exactly. Because in the dark, right. you're not going to be able to see well enough on the LCD on the camera. You won't see until you get back to your computer. Yes, yeah, depending on the quality of your LCD, but yes. 
if you want to throw money at the problem, you know, there are devices called batten off masks, which are basically diffraction gratings you can place in front of your lens in a filter holder. And you, when you adjust focus, you can see a line moving in relation to an X. And when that line is precisely centered on the center of the X, you know you're in precise focus. Um, but hmm. that's, get, that's getting into more money and time and gear than, than we probably would, that most beginners would want to, uh, to dive yeah. in. That. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at a photo uh, that opens chapter four on, of your book, and you've got a foreground. Um, you're on a rocky ledge near some sort of canyon. What is this? The Milky Way in the Colorado River from Dead Horse Point. In the foreground, you've got a tree. Um, and in the background, you've got this big expanse and about half the frame is the Milky Way. But so you've got to focus on the tree there to make sure that's in focus as well as get infinity in focus. So is that where you come into the whole hyperfocal circle of confusion? Well, no, because your depth of field is so shallow at night that I generally if I need more depth of field than I can get in a single frame, then I use focus stacking. Uh, OK, so. Right. So the you know, one advantage of using an ultra wide lens like a 16 millimeter lens when shooting at night is that focused at infinity, the depth of field of that lens at f2.8 is about 15 feet to infinity. So you've already got pretty reasonable depth of field. If you need more depth of field than that, it's relatively easy to focus stack because with that wide a lens, if you focus, you do some, you know, a frame at focused at infinity then a frame focused at eight feet away and a frame focused at five feet away, that will give you everything sharp from about three feet, nine inches to infinity. So you only need to do three frames. Um, you know, even trying to, you know, the hyperfocal distance, I, I don't even have it memorized because I never use it for, for a 16 <laughs> millimeter lens at F2.8. I mean, you could look it up in photo pills or something, but it doesn't buy you all that much greater depth of field. And it's kind of, you know, like all depth of field tables, you know, they're kind of optimistic, right? You know, they're sort of assuming that you're going to make an eight by 10 inch print and look at it from a foot away. And, you know, if you want to make a 20 by 30 inch print and look at it from a foot away, you know, they're really not going to cut it in terms of sharpness. So I think that as complicated as it is, I think focus stacking is a better solution than trying to use the hyperfocal distance at night. So if you're focus stacking, let's say you're, you need to do a 30 second shot. How much is the Milky Way going to have moved between one shot and another? Or do you, do you cut the Milky Way part off and just focus stack the foreground? So in order to get good uh, detail everywhere in the frame in a night shot, you're pretty much going to, at least in terms of the Milky Way, you're pretty much going to need to shoot the sky and land separately. So, you know, if the correct exposure for the sky is 30 seconds F2.8, ISO 6400, yeah. then yeah. the correct exposure for the land is going to be about two minutes F2.8, ISO 6400. It's about a two-stop difference typically between the correct exposure for the sky and the correct exposure for the land. So normally what I would do is I would shoot the sky, you know, at the correct exposure for the sky, which renders the land very, very dark. Then I change the exposure to be correct for the land, and that's when I do my focus stacking. And then I put the two frames together, the focus stacked land and the sky together in Photoshop. So it's a sort of combination of HDR and focus stacking. Well, you can't really use HDR at night because the stars move. You know, the, the big bugaboo of HDR. Of no, I mean for the foreground. The, well, combining the foreground part with the background part. 
Would that not be the same as an HDR shot where that, that's not exactly HDR. HDR is is uh like like two or more separate exposures of the same thing. But but what you're talking about is your your uh stacking different exposures. So it's kind of exposure blending, not full on yeah. HDR. Yeah. Okay. Cor- correct. Exposure blending would be a better term. If you tried to use a standard HDR approach, you know, to combine the good sky and good land exposures, the problem is that the streaky stars, remember that the stars in a two minute exposure are going to make very long streaks and you will see those streaks superimposed on top of the sharper stars if you try to use HDR. So it pretty much has to be a manual blending process in Photoshop and that obviously can get quite complex. Yeah. So this brings up post-processing that I want to touch on before we wrap up because uh, star photography seems to need more post-processing than other areas just because oftentimes you want to pull out some more of that color in the Milky Way. Is that is that just my, my bias for post-processing or <laughs> is that just because... Uh, I mean, like, like for example, uh, white balance always seems to need to be uh, tweaked with sky photography. So one of the first things people discover the first time they shoot the Milky Way on a moonless night is that the sky is not blue. It's like, yeah. wait a minute. We all think the sky is blue. I mean, it's blue all day on a clear day. It's, you know, the last color we see at night, you know, before it gets dark is blue, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we think that moonlight has a bluish cast to it, which is actually an optical illusion. Moonlight is actually warmer than noon daylight. Uh, but when you take a photograph of the sky at night with no moon, it's not blue. In fact, yeah. it is usually some shade of green. It's a phenomenon called air glow. The physics are quite complex, and it can be other colors as well. But the most common color is this greenish color comes from light uh, emanating from oxygen atoms uh, high in the atmosphere. Yeah, you've got uh, so, a, a double-page spread in your book showing the green bit and the bit where you've tweaked the white balance to make it blue. And the green almost looks like a, um, an ocean green, like an underwater green. Right. It's actually the same green color um, as the light of the aurora, uh, the most typical light from the aurora. But sure. the, mechan- okay. the mechanism of exciting the oxygen atoms is very different. So your your first question then in post-processing is how do you deal with this fact that the sky is green? Um, so, you know, the very you, you can choose to do what a, very few photographers do, like Roger Clark, this astronomer I know, who says, you know, he is on the warpath to persuade people to capture the true beauty of the night sky and the actual wavelengths present in the night sky. So you go to his websites and you've got these astonishing green skies over various landmarks in Colorado. And that's a perfectly valid approach. You know, the flaw, though, in his logic, to my point of view, is we can't see that color. Right. We don't we basically do not see color at night unless an object is bright enough to excite the cones in our retina. So we can see the color of certain bright stars. So Antares, Aldebaran, uh, Betelgeuse, you know, are all famously, you know, reddish in tone. You know, um, Rigel and Sirius are kind of blue white. Um, So my approach has been to instead of just doing sort of a brute force shift of the white balance of a night sky, and to turn the sky blue, which turns everything blue. All the stars are blue. The land is blue. It's yeah. a very heavy, heavy-handed approach. Uh, my approach has been to shift the color of the sky itself toward blue 
while preserving the colors of those bright objects where I actually can see the color, such as those bright stars I mentioned. And you know, Mars, of course, famously the red planet, etc. Um, and then for the land, because that's normally a separate exposure, I do shift the land slightly toward blue to help preserve that nighttime feel. This is a technique that Hollywood has used for decades to shoot their nighttime scenes. You know, they, they call it, you know, mm -hmm. day for night photography. They shoot it in daytime, but they put a blue filter over the, you know, the camera or do it in post-processing. And then they darken the footage a little bit and suddenly daylight looks kind of like nighttime. So, right. Or, or so in the old days in black and white films, they would just underexpose. Yes. Um, the, the French have a term for that, which is the name of a movie by uh, François Truffaut. It's called La Nuit Américaine, American Night. Ah, uh-huh. I'm not familiar with the film, but uh, sounds applicable. Yep. Um, so on a scale of 1 to 10 in difficulty, it looks to me like there's quite a range of difficulty in night photography, that it's not that hard if you find a good location to start taking interesting photos. But then as you, it, it's, it's a real leap in complexity with focus stacking and all those things in post-production. Um, but there's no reason why anyone shouldn't just go out and try um, exactly. using the techniques in your book because mm -hmm. it really doesn't look that complicated. Um, you've got to think about shooting meteor showers, and we were talking about the Perseids in August. Mm -hmm. I think anyone who's in a location to see them – now, obviously, there are different techniques because you've got to catch the meteors and, and they're moving and all that. But anyone who's in that sort of location, if you can find a frame for the sky, um, whether it's open land or whether you've got trees around or something, it seems like something obvious to just try to see how it works. Sure. Yeah. That's, you know, the easiest way to shoot meteor showers is get your wide-angle lens, set it to wide open, focus at infinity – you know, include the radiant of the meteor shower if you want to, the point in the sky where it appears the meteors are coming from. But that's not necessary because they appear in all different parts of the sky. And then just stand there and bang out frames, you know, 30-second frames, one after another until you capture a bright meteor. And, you know, pixels are free. What the heck? Just yeah. throw, away, throw away all the garbage <laughs> images and keep the one with that one bright meteor zipping through the frame. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's certainly a straightforward, you know, technique that doesn't require any fancy gear or any fancy knowledge. So you've, you've got a couple of photos, um, particularly the one that opens Chapter 10 of your book, Photographing Meteor Showers, where you've got dozens of meteors. Are those multiple shots that you've overlaid? Yes, yes. Okay. So that, that is definitely much more elaborate. Um, so what I did there was I just basically uh, opened the shutter and, and ran 30-second exposures back-to-back -back all night long. And then I sifted through you know the thousands of images that I captured. Um, and picked out the ones that had the bright meteors, and then I composited those meteors into a single frame, and then I also shot the land separately, and I arranged the meteors so they all appeared to be uh, radiating from the radiant, which is the point in the sky that meteors appear to originate from. So the sky, the background sky, you know, I timed it so that the radiant for that meteor shower was indeed within the, the frame. So it's um, so, you know, it's maybe more photo illustration than yeah. straight photograph. You know, certainly uh, I didn't see, you know, 25 or 40 or 50 meteors fall in one 30 second exposure. You know, that no, the, no, the no, meteors. because I I know that when we watch the meteor shower, you know, you'll get one every five or 10 minutes sometimes at best. Yes, they tend to come in bursts. Um, ah. So, you know, something like the Geminids or the Perseids, you should be able to see something in the order of one per minute. 
Um, but of course, if it's directly behind you, you know, you might, you know, you might not yeah. see it, even though it fell. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, Glenn Randall, I want to thank you very much. This is really enlightening. Um, I'm looking forward to trying this. Um, if we ever get warm weather again, because, you know, we're recording this on June 30th and I had to put the heat on this morning over here. Oh, dear. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the book is called Dusk to Dawn. A Guide to Landscape Photography at Night. And we're going to have a couple of copies to give away. So if you are a subscriber to our mailing list, um, Jeff will use Siri to pick random numbers and to pick a couple of people who get a copy of the book. If you're not a subscriber, this is a great reason to subscribe to the mailing list. There'll be info on the website on the page for the podcast episode. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Okay, Jeff, it's time for our snapshots. What have you got? So I have a Mac app that's rather interesting. It's called Photo Statistica, and it's a photography app that has very little photos in it. Basically, it's an app that will look at your photo library, and that can be your, your photos library, or uh, you could point it at a, a folder of photos. I pointed it at my Lightroom library that I have on a, an external disk, and it reads all of the EXIF data, from all those photos and gives you insight into all sorts of things. So for example, you can see how many photos you shot at f2.8. Or you could say, how many photos did I shoot at f2.8 in the last year? Or how many photos at that aperture did I shoot at a fast exposure? And basically, like any sort of number that your camera generates and applies to your photos can be viewed and filtered and just basically crunched in this app. It's it's kind of fascinating. It, we've talked before about maybe looking for different apertures in your library so you can see, oh, you know, do I shoot a lot of the same aperture if I'm going to buy a new lens maybe I want to get something that is a you know a, a prime lens versus a zoom lens how much do I shoot of those different things and this just gives you a lot of insight into that it's uh, I think it was like two dollars and 99 cents at the Mac app store it's inexpensive and I threw my uh, Lightroom library at it which had over a hundred thousand photos and it seemed to handle it just fine yeah, I got it too. Um, uh, what I like is, I think we've talked about this in the past, uh, to looking to see which lenses you've used. Um, so sort of by focal length, um, which obviously most of the photos in my photo library, well, a quarter of the photos in my library have a four millimeter focal length. So that's the iPhone um, mm-hmm. because of the crop factor. But I see that there's a lot more with 23 millimeter than say 35 and then there's 45. Of course, the problem is if you use a zoom lens, then the focal length is going to be strange. It's not going to match a lens, but you can also choose, for example, focal length band. Um, so I just change the thing less than nine, nine to 18, 18 to 30. Um, you can even choose focal length in 35 millimeter equivalent, which for us using a mirrorless camera, um, this gives us a better idea of what the equivalent is. I still think that my 35 millimeter Fuji lens is a 50 millimeter, for example. Right. Well, I also like the fact that because the iPhone gets into the mix, 
I have a whole bunch of photos shot at f1.8 because the iPhone wants that that uh, wide open aperture as much as it can. And so it, you can set a filter that just says exclude any camera make by Apple and then see everything else that I've shot with DSLRs and mirrorless. So it's enormously flexible. Yep. Kirk, what do you have this week? I bought a new lens. Um, if you remember, I told you about um, the many dinosaurs that fly around in my back garden. Um, <laughs> birds are descendants of dinosaurs, and I like to think of them as little dinosaurs. And the longest lens I have is the Fuji 16-80 to 80 zoom lens, which is a really good lens. I really like it. It's something I got a few months ago. But I needed something longer, and I was thinking, do I want to get the 100 to 400, which is massive and way too expensive, or the 55 to 200, which is smaller and a lot cheaper. And so I got the 55 to 200. I got it from Fuji's refurbished lens store in the UK. Um, you don't have that in the States, but you do in the UK. So if anyone out there is a Fuji user, they get a one-year guarantee. They're in perfect condition. I bought several lenses and I bought a body from them as well. Um, I'm not going to say too much about the lens itself, but what I want to talk about is how getting a new lens is like entering into a new relationship. Um, it takes a while to become familiar with the way the lens works. And it's not like, okay, if you're going from a 35 to a 50 millimeter prime, it's not that big a difference. But when you get something like this, it's, it's relatively large and heavy. It's a zoom lens. And you're, you're thinking about a new way of photographing. Um, I've never had a, a long zoom. So 55 to 200, that's what, about 82 to 300 or something in 35 millimeter equivalent. So I've never had a long zoom like that. And that means when I look through the camera, I'm really close to things that are a lot further away than what I'm used to. So I have to rethink the way my eye works without looking at the camera before I raise the camera. Um, it's an interesting concept and, and I've been shooting birds and we live near the Avon river. So I've been shooting ducks and swans and things like that. Um, but the longer or shorter a lens is a very wide angle lens, um, or a long zoom lens means that you have a different relationship with what you're seeing with a wide angle lens. It's not that much of a difference. You can easily picture with your peripheral vision, all that the wide-angle lens is seeing. But with a zoom lens, it changes the world a lot. Um, so I don't have a lot to say about it, about the quality. In fact, I don't think I've actually... I've shot maybe 100 or 200 photos, and I haven't even put them on my computer yet to look at them. Um, but it's just the idea of a new lens that this, that's this different that requires a different way of thinking about photography. So Fuji Non X55 to 200, um, F3.5 to 4.8, uh, with optical image stabilization, which for me is important because I've got a bit of a tremor, and this is a heavy lens. And what I find, by the way, um, standing in technically our living room that looks out on the garden, I can hold this lens in my hand, zoom at 200 millimeters to the birds on the feeders, and I don't see a shake in my camera. And that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I've rented this lens before, and it's, it's really well built if I remember correctly, um, takes really good pictures. And, and like you said, it's not as massive or as expensive as the 100 to 400, which is also a great lens. But uh, this, it, it, the 55 to 200 is a really good uh, compromise there in terms of, of weight and cost. And I think 
having the image stabilization is also good because, as you found out, when you zoom into those those uh, really tight crops, uh, every little motion makes a bigger difference. Okay, so that's it. Until next time, Jeff, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.